0: Hi everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Susanna Harwood-Rubin. Susanna is the author of Yoga 365, Daily Wisdom for Life on and Off the Mat. She is a yoga teacher, writer, and artist whose work is rooted in South Indian philosophy. Based in New York City, Susanna teaches internationally and speaks on yoga, meditation, and Hindu myth. Her spiritual home is in Chidambaram at the great Nataraja and Talai Kali temples. She teaches Devi Soul Yoga, combining Yoga Asana with mantra, myth, and mudra, and is the creator of 30 Things and Writing Your Practice workshops and online courses that apply yoga philosophy and myth to the practice of writing. Susanna writes for numerous publications and has been featured on Huffington Post Live, MSNBC Today, She Summit yoga journal mantra wellness and more and susanna is with me here today at my home in brooklyn new york so hello susanna thanks so much for joining me
1: hello jacob thank you for inviting me
0: so it's a real pleasure to get an opportunity to talk to you today i know we swim in similar circles in new york we're both uh, tantricas Uh, we study with teachers who have um, worked alongside each other at various points in their life. So it's, um, it's a beautiful opportunity to get to have a conversation with you today about so many things that we're both passionate about. But before we get into all of that, I would love to hear a little bit about um, your own story and what has led you to um, uh, your own practice that you have today.
1: Mm, it's such an interesting one. <laughs> it's like I'm always trying to encapsulate this long story into a short um, right. little blurb um, the abridged was, version yes the abridged <laughs> version <laughs> I'll do my best um, I began I started I moved to New York as an artist mm. so in the art world as a very young adult
0: before 9-11 right?
1: oh yeah well right, yeah, yeah before in the 90s and, um, and I was thoroughly embedded in the art world lecturing and writing for MoMA and working as an artist and showing quite extensively actually and exhibiting work in New York and internationally. And I was very stressed out, so I found yoga at the gym, finally. I had done Mm -hmm. yoga years earlier, and I would practiced very seriously, actually, in high school and helped teach it. Although, back then, it was like, oh, do a headstand, now lie down, now relax, now breathe. You know, it was very, it wasn't what it is today. And I found my way back to it, because I was so stressed out from the art world. And, I, I had a real love-hate thing with the art world because I had always considered myself an artist. I'd always written, too, but I'd always considered myself an artist. And First and foremost. First and foremost. there mm-hmm. was like, that was who I was. That was my identity, period. Yeah. And right. I found myself increasingly disliking the New York art world. Mm. I love New York, but the art world was just... I felt like it wasn't really that much different than being on Wall Street.
0: It was. Mm. It was... Like a superficiality to yeah, it, or
1: superficiality. I felt like I had to spend most of my time doing self-promotion, mm-hmm. and not so much time getting my work done. And so, this whole idea of who I was wasn't—it was misaligned in a way. Yeah. Like my actions and what I, who I wanted to be, and what I had to do to get to where I thought I wanted to be were not in sync. And it wasn't until really, and so I was really struggling with all these things, and it wasn't until 9-11 that I actually ended up doing a yoga teacher training, and it was, it just clarified a lot for me, temporarily. (laughs) I got confused again later, but I realized that um, I wanted to spend less time schmoozing at art openings, and less time alone in a room, and more time in community, and connecting with people, Yeah, and that really changed things for me, and I never had the tiniest intention of being a yoga teacher even though i had taught in high school it's just kind of a fun thing i do with my teacher and i emerged thinking do i want to teach yoga and i struggled with my identity surrounding that for a long time i had a hidden yoga site inside my art website was for years <laughs> that because the yogis were like password ah, protected yeah. <laughs> yogis were like oh it's so cool that you make artwork you know and the artists were like oh you're not serious about art you're doing mm-hmm. something else other than making art. So, And now the art world doesn't care so much anymore, but um, my relationship to it is so different. So I was still at MoMA for many years and actually just stopped lecturing there a few years ago. I was on staff part-time for nine years, but then I went back to being a freelance lecturer there. I started as one and then ended as one. Mm-hmm. So I left on good terms, but ultimately, I just was like I had to make decisions about where my focus would be. So I still make artwork, but um, it's more in the service of my spiritual practices, and I regained that love and, of exploring through, like, a pen moving on paper, a pencil scratching across a surface. Um, that I had, like, a deep love of drawing that I had years ago that I had really lost. And, um, and yoga really brought that back for me.
0: That's beautiful. So I want to ask you a little bit about um, the, the kind of 9-11 transition, because I feel like this is something that people who live in New York in the yoga community know about that is uh, at least to some degree kind of an untold story, which is the story of yoga's evolution in New York City where, you know, 9-11 happened and yoga exploded as a sort of, as a kind of, uh, you know, it was necessary. There was, you know, it was almost like it just was completely instinctive that, of course, this practice would take root here. And so the success and the popularity of yoga in New York today really is is uh, is connected to that history? So, can you paint a little picture of that, at least in terms of your own story, and and um, and what that was like to feel that pull towards a spiritual practice?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I live within a mile of the World Trade Center, so you know, I watched it from Washington Square Park, and it, you know, <laughs> there was a before and there was an after, and then and then our my neighborhood for. The next month, you could almost not breathe Um, the area, that area around NYU and Washington Square Park. It was really, the air was so thick and heavy that I would step inside my apartment, immediately take off all my clothing, wrap them up in a plastic bag, block the door, and step into the shower and have to wash everything head to toe, because the stench, the chemical stench, the stench of bodies, the stench of everything was just coating my Mm. skin and hair. Wow. And so that was, I mean, and I'm one of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who experienced that. But I that, I don't even think I know that that, was, that caused a huge boom in the yoga world. Because I was doing it then. I can remember going to see, like, Krishna Das at Jiva Mukti next door to Crunch, and it was sort of like, oh, there are, like, 15 people in a room chanting with this guy. This is sort of like something is interesting happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something interesting is happening to me. You know, my skin's kind of vibrating. But I didn't really know what it was. And <clears throat> I was fine, you know, just kind of visiting that now and then. And then it became more of a necessity to me afterwards. And like that there were these ways that we could work things out of our body and connect the mind and the body. And the thing that had gone missing for me in the art world, suddenly I was finding in this other world. His mm. art was always very mind body to me and just like the physicality of making a drawing or m- working on sculpture and being immersed like body heart mind in every way and then I kind of lost that in all the anxiety about like making your way in the art world and climbing and this and that and I just didn't like it so all of a sudden boom here it was in a different context and then it exploded I mean I really do believe that the huge yoga explosion that happened was a direct result of 9-11 mm-hmm. because I just watched it happen. I mean, all of a sudden, there's a teacher training everywhere. Yeah. And everyone was like, that's it. you know. I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a yoga teacher. I'm not going to be. And we were all kind of like, yeah, you might not want to do that. Those of us <laughs> who were already artists, we were like, you might not want to give up your day job. But um, <laughs> but it was really a huge shift. Mm. And then yoga became normal-ish sometime around 2000. 2010, yeah. 2000, yeah, I
0: don't know. So when did the, because obviously you're known for being very connected to the esoteric teachings um, and obviously particularly the teachings of, of Shaivism. Um, so when did that kind of come into the picture? When did you start to, when did yoga for you become more than simply a physical practice? Like when did you discover the philosophical te- teachings and when did they start to take hold on you?
1: first weekend of my teacher training really (laughs) well the first weekend of my teacher training douglas brooks was oh he
0: was there Mm -hmm.
1: and that was i would not have become a yoga teacher if he had not been involved in my teacher training amazing i might have just dabbled i might have been like oh you know i'll teach my friends or whatever but this guy shows up and he's brilliant and he's talking about these concepts that like every you know and my background is super academic know and I was doing very academic stuff at MoMA mm-hmm. I mean you know the writing and the this and the study and the research and and so all of a sudden here it was in the yoga world and I was like you mean I can have it all <laughs> it was kind of incredible he bl- that was it like yeah. it kind of blew my mind and there was no looking back for me and I do and he knows this too I I, I say I would never become a yoga teacher if it weren't for studying with with you mm. you know so it's been 17 years now
0: and for you it was like it was the kind of rigor of what he was explaining about the tradition or what was it exactly it was the
1: rigor it was the clarity it was the fact that you didn't have to do this like check your brain at the door kind of thing Um,
0: or this wishy-washy new agey sort of like just feel good or just like be positive like
1: you could always give the because (laughs) yeah if you said well why he would say because this 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 oh and that's from the Upanishads and this is from the Vedas and this is from the this and this is from you know the Shiva Sutras and you were like oh well okay then Next question. <laughs> yeah. And so for me, coming from an academic background, that helped me step into it. Like, I I do have that part of me that needs to be like, well, okay, I used to have to research all these artists, and I would have to find 10 sources to make a statement. Yeah. So that, for me, was, I found it very reassuring. And I'm not very rainbows and unicorns, mm-hmm. so. Me neither. not, and so that was very helpful to me. And. <laughs> I like the fact that someone could speak about spirituality in a way that wasn't rainbows and unicorns, in the way that was rooted in sort of an intelligent, experiential way. Yeah, I don't know how to put it, or other than that. And also, it's just, it's funny, when you meet someone, and everything that comes out of their mouth is like, well, yeah, that's what I think. Mm -hmm. And it was that experience, just in terms of a world view. I mean, like, can I give you an example? Like Please. One of the sort of most basic things that resonated with me early on was this conversation between karma and leela. Mm-hmm. So karma, of course, cause and effect. Yeah. Um, it's most simple <laughs> explanation. And um, Leela, which is ser- chance, serendipity, the thing that happens, which can be the best thing on earth or the worst thing on earth. You don't know what it is. But the concept in the tradition that you know, Often I've,
0: translated I've as play, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Cosmic play could be like Radhakrishna. It can be like the divine play. You know, It means so many things. Right. But the idea is that you have karma and lila interacting in this way that they're sort of like zooming in and out of each other. And so you can do all these things and line everything up and have your ducks in a row and do the karmic thing in your life. But you don't know like when something's going to slam you out of the blue that you didn't expect. And that's the leela or when this unbelievable opportunity presents itself, and that's the leela. So the the idea is that cause and effect and absolute chance and circumstance are interacting. And this Mm. is, as you know, not like the main belief in the yoga, most of the yoga traditions. It's, you know, he studied a Sri Vidya tradition from in Madurai with his teacher off and on for many, actually off and on for like 17 years, which is kind of funny. So this is
0: incredible. So what I hear you saying is essentially, this is a solution to the kind of, um, critique of karma that it is deterministic, right? And that there's no escape from it. And what you're saying is actually that these two are kind of a couple, karma and Lila, and considered together, we have, we can, we can hold in the same experience, both this cause and effect structure and also, um, Ch- while still preserving the possibility of chance or randomness or yeah. the chaos of of life.
1: Yeah, that it's, it's yeah, exactly. Because I always had a problem with people who would be like, well, everything happens for a reason. Even when I was young, yeah. I was like, what do you mean everything happens for a reason? Like, and I'd be like, what about the Holocaust? What about Rwandan genocide? Exactly. What about the former yeah. Yugoslavia? Like, all yeah. the terrible things human beings do, the Inquisition, like, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know, how can you. How can you say everything happens for a reason? I mean, every there are reasons that cause things to happen. Yeah. But if you're talking about destiny, yeah. Like I I'm, I'm out.
0: Yeah, I'm this out is exactly what this is so for me, I, you know, my first um I was studying, I was in grad school for philosophy here in New York when I did my yoga teacher training and I won't name names, but <laughs> the yoga teacher training um it was really it was it was based in a sort of a certain teacher's form of Tibetan Buddhism, and they were, and essentially, they were really hooked on this idea of emptiness, but it was emptiness without the accompanying idea of a dependent origination, which, of course, you can't understand the idea of something being empty without the accompanying idea that everything is connected, which is essentially dependent origination. And so, basically, you know, this... um, Everything is empty. But then also this idea of karma was being introduced. And when I did ask a question about the Holocaust, because, of course, then that Im- implies that, you know, that, you know, those people who yeah, went through their the destiny? Yeah, it was their destiny Come or like on. they were car- somehow karmically <laughs> responsible. Crazy. Then the answer was always like, well, karma is mysterious, you know, which is just in other in other words, like you don't need to understand it. Just accept that it's mysterious. And like I was like, this is I don't buy this. Yeah. Not at all. So this is really a, a wonderful teaching that you're offering. Thank
1: you. And no one listening just saw me roll my eyes at that. Yes, so.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, Susanna rolled your eyes. We rolled our eyes collectively together. We did. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so how did you then, um, well, actually, I want to ask you a question about New York, because you and I were having lunch with some mutual friends the other day and um, and talking about living in New York. And I know you also lived in Paris. That's a part of your your kind of formation as an artist. Yeah. Um and, um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the relationship between New York and spirituality, because obviously we're saying historically yoga kind of emerged here. Most people think of New York as a place of, of ambition and commerce, but there's also this incredibly like thriving spiritual scene in this city. And do you have any, you know, thoughts on why that is, why New York also attracts besides incredibly ambitious people, also people who are deeply spiritual?
1: such an interesting question. And I think about it, <clears throat> I think about it all the time, actually. I think part of it's out of necessity. I think people sort of like my story, like I, you know, you get to a point where you're like, is that all there is? Yeah. And I think it tumbles into, I think for many, not all, but many people that, that ambition and that drive tumbles into a, is this all it's ever going to be? at a certain point, once you've achieved certain things. And you're like, I mean, you, for me, I'm like, here I am with a highly coveted you know, position at MOMA. moment. Not that I was anything fancy, you know, but I, I got to do really cool projects and yeah. write on Picasso and Matisse <clears throat> and do all this neat stuff and lecture on all these you know, artists. And I'm like, I know this is highly coveted, but now, now what, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, there was a lot of creative satisfaction for me in that as well. But, and I think, you know, while you earn all this money and you're like, now what? And, and, and I think the next piece is, even in like the Indian tradition, the next piece is now you retire and then you go off and do your spiritual practices. But I think that happens as a result of the intensity of life in New York. I also just think that, some, you know, even though it's a, New York has such frenetic energy in so many ways and such intense energy, I think that draws people with a certain intensity. And that intensity might take form as I'm very ambitious to become a banker, you know? Or it might be like, I want to create this amazing, like, philosophy <laughs> program, program. You know what I mean? It, I think that in, it's, it's an intensity of energy that can manifest in many ways. That's yeah. My, what, I mean, what do you think? I'm curious.
0: No, I, I actually it. agree with everything you're yeah. saying, yeah. I think that I'd I, I think I'd probably answer the question in a very similar way and that it's, it does seem to be kind of a like a form of necessity and then also just I think you know you know going back to I really like to read the Shaiva philosophy as sort of the philosophy of the artist in a certain kind of way just like the kind of um upsurge of creativity that is sort of like the 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 Shakti of life I feel like is at the highest potency here like or you know not to, it's not like everywhere else in the world sex of course that would be a new yorker's <laughs> response <laughs> like why would you want to be anywhere else really? this is of course the best <laughs> um but yeah i just i just think that there's this kind of overflowing um vibrancy here that is absolutely inspiring i often say it this way it's like if you can harness the energy of new york it will take you to you know the greatest kind of um, the highest form of your own capacity for expression, success, whatever however you want to think about it. But if you can't harness it, then it will mow you over, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, you see it happen all the time, right? People who are able to harness or are able to ride the wave of that shakti, and then people who just get completely you know blown over by it. And I think there's no real medium. <laughs> it's either one or the other, you uh, know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know people, <clears throat> when I think of my graduate program, you know, in fine arts, and I look at the people, there's some people who are complete art stars, like world famous, major museum shows. There are like three of them I can think of from the two years I was there. So, in the one from, none from my year actually, one from the year before, and one from the year after, really, or two, maybe, I don't know. But, um, <clears throat> and then... There are a bunch of people who sort of did what I did. Like, they make art, but they also found this other thing that they do that they're really into. And then the a lot of people just vanished. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I think just you can only take so much of being chewed up yeah. by the New York art world. You had to find your center somehow. If everything in your life was dependent on someone's evaluation of your work or your day, you know, just, it's hard. Yeah.
0: And then I think that some of us are just masochists. We just, yeah. we like the pain. Yeah. <laughs> we just keep like, throwing ourselves at it yeah, again and again. like, and, and maybe like, this time eventually. it'll be different. <laughs> um, so um, I want to sort of, you know, transition to talking a little bit about your sadhana and having you, um, you know, talk about sort of some of the philosophy, because of course, um, you're very um, articulate at, at speaking about these things. So you have a, we were just talking about before we started the interview that, you know, you were a shiva, shiva, shiva kind of um, person in terms of your practice. And then, you know, more recently, uh, maybe not so recently, but, you know. Uh, at some point later, you developed this Kali Sadhana. Mm-hmm. So what, can you can you kind of trace that shift in your life? Was it the result of certain things that happened to you personally? Um, yeah, she's, she's giving a nod of agreement. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so tell us about um, that.
1: I mean, I always, from day one, knew that my spiritual home was the great temple of Nataraja in Chidambaram. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was without question. That was my spiritual home. And... I felt, and I've been going there since 2008. I mean, I first went there with Douglas Brooks, and I've been there several times with him and on on pilgrimage and everything. And now I I more often go on my own, so I can just really hang out there and be there, or I'll go with a couple friends, but I always spend time there on my own. And it's a very powerful place for me. And of course, at the far edge of town is, it's accompanying temple, which is Tilai Kali, which is one of the great Kali temples, and, as you know, Chidamaram is huge. It's like a walled-in medieval village. I mean, it's 40-plus yeah, acres. And then Tilakali is like this tiny little place. But it's very powerful. And I always felt like I was trying to connect more with it. And I didn't, and I thought it was so strange. I'm like, I'm a feminist, and I'm like, total girl's girl, and I have my girlfriends, and I support women, and why am I not connecting with the divine feminine and, and all of her ferocity? And I would just go back and be like, oh, Nataraja, and stand in front of him for, you know, Darshan for hours, and be in bliss, and, you know, meander back to my hotel and realize I had been up since four, and it was only nine, and it was time for breakfast, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was ver- it was a frustration to me. And then I just kind of let it go. I was like, oh, okay, I don't know, for whatever reason, you know, it's just, this is who I am. And, and um, it was kind of like a joke with me and some of my friends like, they're like oh yeah, you're a girl. I was like, yeah, I, I kind of am. And then when I was diagnosed f- about four years ago this month, actually. Diagnosed with? With, with um, DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, also known as stage zero breast cancer. So, yeah, stage zero, everyone's like, what's that? I'm like, it's basically abnormal looking cells that they think might go rogue. And I basically, I did active surveillance because my only other option was an immediate prophylactic double mastectomy and I thought maybe I could hold it at bay and I changed all my habits and I did all kinds of stuff, did not work out. But um, at that point, that was when I really went into this, like what is going on? You know, what's happening in my life? It was very, I had four very rough years, um, three years and culminating in a double mastectomy, months of chemo, months of radiation, from which I'm still recovering right now. So I would sit like, I started connecting more and more over this period of time. And then in 2000, 18, like I lost a year of my life because of treatment, so I'm trying to remember <laughs> when things happened. This is, I guess, yeah, it was January 2018. I was in Chidambaram for a couple of weeks and two friends and I, who were there together, did a private abhishekam at Telekali. Mm. And even though I'd seen abhishekam there before, Abhi, abhishekam for those who don't know, is like the pouring over of liquids and And, but we did it privately, and it was, you can't put it into words, it it was so powerful. And she's covered in this mountain of red kumkum, it's a red powder, and so when they do Abhishekam, it pours off of her, and swirls, there's this mess of oil and, and, you know, swirling around your feet, and it's like you're standing in these thick, dense pools of blood, it just looks like blood. And something happens to you. And there are these monster cockroaches crawling all over because it's collie and it's crazy and messy and ecstatic and exquisite. And um, that was kind of it. Mm. And I still actually have the the Rocky on my wrist from that. It amazingly hasn't fallen off. And I did not, despite my surgeries, did not let anyone take it off of me. Um, So that was the real shift for me it was when I just gave up looking that it was kind of like a joke. And she said, well, I'm right. Cause I've been here the whole time. <laughs> and yeah, like here I am. Yeah.
0: So thanks for seeing me yes. finally. So tell us, you know, I, I think many who are listening are, are not as kind of versed in um, the meaning of the deities. And so, you know, a lot oftentimes Kali is sort of understood in a very um, reduced way as sort of like this pissed off, bloodthirsty goddess. So can you unpack Kali for us and talk a little bit about her meaning and what she symbolizes?
1: Yeah. Kali at if, to sum her up, I tell people this Kali is all possibility mm. everything that can happen, has happened did happen, will happen that's terrifying. Yeah, because she's every rasa, and the rasas the flavors and the, the tastes of experience. So, and they range from like joy and eroticism and happiness, you know, lightness of heart, to the grotesque and the gruesome, and you know, anger and all these things. So she's all of that. So the idea is, you know, if you can imagine like her as an ocean, and each one of us just rises up like a little wave dance around we do our life and then we like sink back down into her so it's all possibility it's everything that can be
0: Mm. so in that sense we are Kali an expression of Kali Kali.
1: there's Mm. no separation and Mm. that was my realization and no matter how many times people might have said that to me it didn't matter I had to feel it in my bones and in my blood and really experience that and once you realize that the ferocity. The ferocity is there because life is terrifying. You don't know what's gonna happen. You know, unless you're in a straight karmic model, cause effect, cause effect, car- determinist model, which I am not, and most people are not actually entirely. Yeah. Or they wanna be, but they're not really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you fear the unknown, you're not entirely in a determinist
0: exactly. model. Exactly, that's so true. Um,
1: yeah. So, all of possibility is scary. If you don't know what's gonna happen, you have no real control over your life, you can do certain things you can do what you can we all do what we can we create structures to live our lives but not knowing what's going to come next is is a lot mm-hmm. but it also gives us complete possibility and that's the beauty of it so you can look at the scary side of kali with her fangs and her rolling eyes and her like tongue hanging out and you know you know she's drinking the demon's blood in in the rakta bija myth and but she can do that because it's her Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, she's just drawing that stuff back into herself. It's already there. All the scary stuff is there, but also all the beautiful stuff is there. Mm-hmm. So that was my big realization. I was, was kind of like, eh, you know, Kali. But I realized, I felt the softness and the beauty and the love. It's like now that you're in the fire and your body's getting cut up and you're being, having toxic things pumped through your body and all these awful things are happening to you, you know, can you just release into her? It's like, this is happening. Just get with it. It's not about resistance. It's about how do I keep finding alignment again and again and again. And I do feel like, had I not had that experience in January, then I went through my surgery, end of May, that got me through it. Mm. And it was this deep, deep, deep Kali Sadhana. Yeah. Not that, you know, and of course Kali is the most ferocious form of Shiva's beloved. So it's still in the, like, Shiva Shakti,
0: tradition. Mm. So um, this is so beautiful. And I, I'm hearing you say that a lot of the, the yoga of cancer, if we want to use a catchphrase Mm. for you, there's this feature of surrender, but are there any other features that like of that, that process or that sadhana that you think are particular to the experience? Like for someone that may have experienced cancer or is perhaps will experience cancer Um, knock on wood um, what are the kinds of things based on your experience you would offer to someone in that place
1: a deep inner conversation I think you have to talk to yourself or talk to like spirit you know whatever you want to call it I was calling it Kali you know you have to have a deep conversation with your body like a deep deep conversation and sometimes I would talk to it out loud. More often, just silently. But I would be like, "What is happening? What's that feeling? Where is that? It's okay. Um, I love you." You know, I did a real practice of "I love you," mm. just to my body, because, you know, I went from having a body I love to having, you know, yeah, like a pretty mangled-looking chest. You know, and um, you know, I had to, I had to love myself again. I had to do that, and it was very, very tough. And I kept saying, okay, but at least I'm alive. At least I can walk. You know? I didn't lose my ability to walk and to move. And, but still, it's, it's deeply traumatic to yeah. have something like that happen to you. And, um, and, y- and you don't feel the same and your body's different forever and you know, it's, it's rough. So that inner conversation is everything. You have to be so loving to yourself. Mm. You have to aggressively engage in self-love even when you feel like you're faking it. Yeah. You have to. Because you won't get through it intact otherwise. And I do believe that that's what gives rise to all the like, I mean, I hate to say this, but all the pink ribbon stuff and all the, you know, the fuck cancer and, and like, it empowers people to feel like they're warriors, you know, yeah. and, and I'm in the middle of writing about how that's not at all my point of view.
0: Well, that's actually what I wanted to ask you about, because I, when you were saying, talking about loving your body, I was, I wanted to ask the follow-up question, It does that involve also loving the cancer? Because you hear, um, and I know that sounds a little weird, but you hear a lot of people, it's like, it's always the attitude towards the tumor or whatever, however it's showing up in the body, is that it's the enemy that has to be sort of like destroyed and i and i just wonder if there's something a little bit wrong-headed about that approach and actually that 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 is sort of something that could feed in a certain sense the i don't know whatever it is at least in terms of your own psychological kind of um understanding of it or or health with regards to the whole matter so what are your thoughts on on oh, that i have,
1: I have- very strong thoughts on this.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> Good. a
1: great question for me. Um, I've actually written quite a bit about it on social media and I'm writing an article right now for, we'll see what publication it <laughs> comes out and you'll see. But I have huge objections to the language of war applied to my body. Yeah. The first doctor I went to when I, just to be diagnosed for this, um, when I, they told me I had ductal carcinoma in situ, I went to a major surgeon at a hospital. I won't mention her by name because I never went back to her. And she said to me, she got right in my face and she said, I know, I'll never forget it. She said, I know how you feel. Like your body's been invaded. Oh God. I I mean, this is one of the top breast surgeons in this city, in New York City. At a major cancer center. And I was dumbfounded. I just, I couldn't believe, and, and I was, you know, and I said, you do not know how I feel. You don't know anything about me. I have not been invaded. Everyone has cancer cells in their body. I have a misalignment. And she looked at me like I wasn't from Mars. And she didn't <laughs> know how to handle this. And I was just like, I'm Crazy never Crazy yogi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, I know how you feel. Like your body's been invaded. I just couldn't, I can't even imagine someone in the medical profession saying, I know how you feel to a patient.
0: Yeah. Like. No, you don't.
1: Communication 101. No one knows how anyone feels. How yeah. about how do you feel right now? Yeah, exactly. Some people feel like this. Mm-hmm. Like just the sloppiness with language and the arrogance and, um, and the, the poisoning of my own mind toward my body. Yeah. You, your body's been invaded. And it hadn't even occurred to me to feel that way. Yeah. I really felt like, oh, there's something cellularly wrong. There's something wrong with the ecosystem of my body, you know, that's misaligned and I need to work on it and fix it. And, and it ended up I needed extreme measures to do that, but I never felt that way. I mean, even when I had expanders put in, this is like when you have a double mastectomy, they put an expander so you can gradually, under the muscle wall, they pull it away from the rib cage so they can gradually expand so you, they can put in um, silicone afterwards mm-hmm. so you can actually have fake breasts. <laughs> like, yeah. how do I put this? fake breasts? Fake <laughs> breasts. So, um, which I know how. Um, that word is allowed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I didn't even think of those as invading. Like, I I consciously thanked these things for being in my body because they were helping me Mm. to move forward and give me something I wanted. They they hurt for six months, you know. It hurt a lot. But, um... I don't see the point in viewing your body that way, and I know that for many people they feel like they they feel disempowered, so they need to fight, and they feel good when they're told they're warriors, and they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna kick cancer's ass," and yet, but it's so
0: it's such a weird, it's such so a weird, weird narrative to me
1: because it's not yeah. the way the body works. Yeah, it's a complete ignorance of what's yeah. happening in the body. Like, everyone has cancer cells. Mine just went berserk, you know. Yeah. So how can you heal when you're hating part of your body?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and also it seems like imagining that uh, putting it in terms of invasion imagines a foreign entity entering you. And if it's doing that, then it sort of like exempts, it takes away the component of sort of empowering you to realize what kinds of choices and alignments could actually like reorient, um, you know, what you're experiencing. But actually my follow up question to that because as um I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I also had uh cancer last year and went through a process um not nearly as brutal as as yours, um but you know still cancer <laughs> yeah, and um brutal. and you know, and I think that i same as you, i never in never considered invasion was just not something that would that's just not the way my mind thinks, but because we are sort of yogis and we, we, you know, we tend to sort of, perhaps to a problematic de- degree, take responsibility or assume responsibility for, like, you know, the, the lack of health in our body, like, is this related to, you know, some kind of mental congestion, is there an unresolved trauma, you know, all those things that we as yogis consider, which is a great thing, but also can maybe come back and you know bite us in the ass for lack of a better expression and I'm wondering if you had a similar experience as I did because I definitely had that sort of occasionally had that rabbit hole where I was like what did I do wrong like where did this come from you know is this my unresolved childhood trauma like did this come from that like could I have avoided this if I had followed an Ayurvedic diet you know all these sort of things you know that 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 I think is a very kind of yogic neurosis you know you might say so what what did you have that I mean you sound like you had a very healthy approach to it but
1: oh I actually really appreciate you call giving that a name a yogic neurosis <laughs> because yeah that was it was a really um and still is continues to be you know to worry me like I love to eat you know and I love good wine and everything and everyone's like oh you shouldn't drink anymore ever like another like breast cancer yogi wrote to me like she's like it's so awful I just miss wine so much and she's like don't you and I was like well no because I'm drinking drinking it, it right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, I'm just sort of like that's too you know. Have I been like, oh, okay? So I'm not going to go out with a friend like and split a bottle on a regular basis, but like I will have a glass, you know? Yeah. And because there are correlations or between, yes, for two, <laughs> there are correlations between breast cancer and alcohol consumption. Really? Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, very unfortunately. But I don't. Once you've already had breast cancer, does it matter? Like I don't. You know what I mean? I don't. Exactly. Yeah. Once you've had your breast removed, does it matter? I don't really know. And. There's so many factors. There's so many factors. And honestly, I, I grew up in a town that we found out later had terrible drinking water. It was a, a nice town next to old mill towns. And articles have come out recently in the past year about the fact that the water that I grew up drinking and bathing in was completely polluted. We didn't know. Mm. And so, eh. so there, yeah. there, and there's, it's a high cancer rate in the town. Yeah. So, you know, and I tell my doctors this, and they're like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, okay, fine. I mean, we come on, you know. Yeah. Come on. I was a little kid. I grew up there. I lived my whole life drinking the water there, you know, until I moved out as an adult. So that's the likelihood. But, yeah, I punished myself all the time. I'm like, oh, I should have been doing this. I should have been doing that. And you know, and I try to do like some intermittent fasting and I try to do this and for a while when I was trying to prevent it, I was doing like a five day limited calorie vegan fast once a month and I, I eat everything. I'm an omnivore. But like and and it I felt really healthy, but the cancer still it was too much like the situation with cancer in my body was just like ready to go. Yeah. And you can do everything right. And I know there I friends were like oh, it's all about the gut you know you just if you ate this that and the other thing and I'm just like oh shut up you there's know there's just no hard and, no and fast every, solution yeah. every every body is different and the circumstances the environmental factors are all different like traumas are different like what we do with our sadness is different what we do with our anger is different and all these things we all know now all of these things are factors yeah you know i was in a really high stress environment i was always high stress i was super type a got things done that's why they love me at moma Mm -hmm. you know and you know how much did i drive myself into this crazy thing how many of those like crazy late nights writing and working Mm -hmm. till 2 a.m and making art you know, drove me into this, right. You know, who knows?
0: But at the point is right at the end of the day, we have to let that go because, you know, I mean, obviously with the, there are certain cancers where we can trace, you know, the cause pretty clearly. Like for example, lung cancer, that's pretty, it's fairly obvious, you know, if someone smoked their whole life and they get lung cancer, that's what it's from. But with, uh, with other cancers, with most most of the cancers, it's not that sort of like that, Um, deterministic kind of narrative of like what, you know, what cause created this effect is you can't say. And if you, if you, if you get so bogged down by this sort of like self responsibility process, I mean that in and of itself is its own kind of, you know, hell, you know, realm. It is a hell. Yeah. So what is the, what is is the, it's the leela right? Right. So what is the yoga practice that lets releases that, that lets us,
1: I mean, I think mantra is always really Mm. key for me, and I have an extensive mudra practice, which is so funny when I say it, because everyone's like, oh, really? But it's a big, that's a big part of my life. Um, So mantras and mantra and mudra practice, i mean, both very much, you know, kind of tantric tradition stuff, but, and darshan, I mean, going and standing at the foot of Nataraja and Tilakali and all the other many deities there, Ganesha, Murugan, you know, all of them.
0: Can you talk about um, Darshan a little bit? So are you are you just, is Darshan see, be seeing and being seen by the deity? Um, is there, is it just that for you? Is there kind of an internal process going on? Do you have mantras that you're repeating in your, you know, internally while you are, in the context of sometimes. Darshan or sometimes? Yeah, okay.
1: sometimes. I mean, there's the <coughs> the 15-syllable mantra that goes with Nataraja, which is, you know, um, important. And I always say that or kind of whisper it or say it out loud or think about it. or um, And then, you know, there's a lot of Om Namah Shivaya happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. I know you know. <laughs> and, and you know, with Kali too, Kali mantras, I have to, chanting is a pretty big part of my life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that's private. I mean, I love going to kirtan and stuff. That's fun. But it's different. It's actually a different thing for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I love that kind of chanting. But really just chanting a mula mantra, a root mantra of a deity is really huge for me. And I think when you start to combine all those things together, um, like mantra, mudra, darshan, like all these things at once, that's when some other thing happens. And you've stepped into some place inside yourself that is deep and bottomless and intimate. Mm. I don't know how to explain it.
0: You just did. You just did perfectly. Yeah. (laughs) So we talked before the interview about, um, about uh, potentially having you uh, tell the story of one of the myths. And I think we settled on one of the Kali myths. So do you want to, yeah, take us through that? Um, Tell us the story of that and then, you know, unpack its its meaning from your perspective.
1: Yes, I love this story because it's so commonly told, and I had an issue with the way it was so neatly summed up at the end for so long. So I'm going to address that. So <clears throat> this is a great story. This is a wonderful story. Um, it's the dance. It's the dance contest. I almost called it a dance party story. Kind <laughs> of a dance party. It's a that's, dance our contest story. Story. That's, that's our story. That's our story. That's for afterwards. <laughs> um, so this is a it's a pretty famous story it's easy to find different versions of it out there on the internet but and it what i like about it also is it explains the geographical situation in Chidumbram with nataraja's temple and with tillai kali's temple so Chidumbram is also referred to as the Tilai forest it's the ancient site of Tilai, the ancient mangrove forest essentially where, and that's Nataraja's, Nataraja's favorite place to dance. He dances like on the hilltop, you know, in the clarity of the light. He dances on the cremation ground where he dissolves life into death so that creation can begin again in the soma, in the moonlight, in the intoxication of um, life and death. And he also dances in the forest. And the forest is the place of mystery because it's the place of shadows it's not like the moonlight clarity of the cremation ground and it's not the sunlight of the mountain it's the place of shadows and ever-shifting light Mm. so it's the place of of indefiniteness it's the place of artistry and this is why when he dances there he's he's Nataraja the lord of the dance Mm. so Shiva transforms into Nataraja so once upon a time all the sages who lived in the forest and the denizens of the forest, of the Tillai forest, were extremely upset because Kali was spending all of her time in the forest. Kali, Shiva's most ferocious beloved, or the most ferocious form of Shiva's beloved, because his beloved takes many forms. And she, you know, Kali is... Wild. She's half dressed. She has a skirt of human arms and around her waist. She's topless and her breasts are hanging down, not attractively apparently, and um, and her she has these fangs and her mouth is open and her tongue is lolling out, which is considered very crude. And her hair is a mess and she's you know has a necklace of skulls and there are all kinds of there, there are all reasons behind all this that I won't get into right now. But, so she's very unkempt, she's very improper. Kali is all possibility, as we've said, so that means she can be crass and crude and behave in ways that no one is supposed to ever behave. So, Kali is hanging out with all of her people, you know, her people are like, you know, demons and these sort of unsavory sorts in the forest, and, All the sages go to Shiva, and Shiva's like hanging out there, meditation, he's not dancing right now, and they say, Shiva, you've got to do something, like this is, we can't, we're trying to do our rituals, we're trying to do our homas, like our fire ceremonies, we're trying to do puja, we're trying to do all these things, and and we're interrupted, and they're like throwing things at us, and creating noise, and they're being inappropriate, we can't sleep, nothing can be done, we can't even worship the gods properly because of her. So... Shiva says, okay, well, what do you want me to do? You know, I'll, I, yeah. They're like, well, take care of her, and like, oh, he's okay. So Shiva goes to Kali, and, and Kali doesn't listen to reason. She's like, no, you can't make me leave. <laughs> and you know, his, his beloved is in her, in, in quite a mood. And so he challenges her to a dance contest. And the agreement is that whoever loses has to leave the forest, has to leave Tilai. So it begins. And the arrangement is that one of them does, uh, does a dance, and then the other one or a posture, and then the other one has to imitate it. And then that one has to do one back. And so they're going back and forth, challenging each other, matching each other, then upping it by one. Amazing. And so they're doing all these dances, and you can find these dances all over the temple, yeah, engraved in the stones, and it's amazing. And, and so they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And they're, of course, very evenly matched because, you know, she has a form of Shakti, and he has Shiva, and Shiva and Shakti are really not separable. So, he's, you know, he's kind of laughing, she's laughing, and then finally he decides he knows what he'll do to get to her. And so he does the ordva, the ordva tandava, which is one leg entirely up in the air, and the other leg entirely down on the ground. And at this, this is the traditional way to end this story. And at this, she realizes she's lost the dance contest because she won't do something that unladylike. See the problem? (laughs) See the problem? This is the way, if you you (laughs) Google this story, people, you will find that this is the way it ends. And this makes no sense. (laughs) (laughs) This makes no sense. And it's a polite way of summing up the story. It's like, ultimately, she was unladylike. Ultimately, she subjected herself to him. And for years I had an issue with this and started suggesting different possibilities for an ending. Because of course, you know, the story gets told and handed down by the people in power in charge of the story. And they're going to tell it the way they want to tell it. And we all know that every story, every myth, every one of these cultural narratives has, you can find 20 different versions if you Google it, yeah. on, you know, online. So you can really, and you can look through different books. Some of them are written in Tamils or Sanskrit, so I can't read them. But you know, there's there's so much out there. So here's, I'm going to say two things. Here's the first one. It seems to me that Kali is liminal. You know, she's an edgy, edgy being. And that's her role. We can't not have Kali. You know, so there has to be that friction, that disharmony, that conflict between she and Shiva. Because you have to have that going on Mm. like she she's terrifying she's frightening she's atrocious like so what would happen and you can't not have Shiva in the forest because he's everywhere but Kali's everywhere too so why does she get exiled like it seems so pedestrian so mundane the ending yeah yeah um she needs to preserve her liminal her liminality and so she moves to the outskirts of the forest. And so when you're in Chidamram, as you know, because you've been mm-hmm. there, um, traditionally the last thing you do is you visit Tilai on your way out of town as you're exiting. And it's a walk. It's about a 15-minute, at least, hike from the temple. Um, that I've done many times. <laughs> and it's there for a reason. You have to have space between them as well. So now there's space between Shiva and... This form of his shakti and you have to go all the way across town and you have to make the trip in it and it's a little bit arduous and it's in this kind of wacky you, you feel like you're in a, a town and then all of a sudden you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere yeah when you go to her temple it's like yeah. on the edge of what and she has to stay liminal she preserves her liminal existence by not being shivakana sundry shivakana sundri is the one shiva desires mm-hmm. and she has the beautiful also known as parvati really she has the beautiful two-armed sweet stunningly beautiful calm cool form and she's in the temple next to Shiva yeah so that, she's just another form of Kali yeah so if Kali's to stay there with him she has to be that mm-hmm. you know because that's the relationship there so she's like no I will not submit I'm going to stay Kali and I'm going to keep this conversation going and I'm going to keep things rocky and complicated and whirling through the Rasas and um and so I'm going to stay out here. And and then she stays very much in her own power, too. That's another thing. She has her own temple. It's her own power. She's calling the shots. What do you uh, If you look at Nataraja, to the left of Nataraja is the, um, it's an empty space. And we won't get into that too much because it's a whole other thing. It's darkness. It's a space. Um, I won't get into it more than that. It's a whole other separate conversation. But so there is this absence on that side of him and on the other side of him is his beloved sweet form of the goddess when you go to Kali, there is an akasha linga there is just a place where it's a stand for a linga without the linga there so they're both invisibly present Mm. in each other's temples that's beautiful and it's said also that she is also the space between all things in shiva's temple you just don't see her you don't see kali you don't see her anywhere in his temple now, here's, here's, um, I'd like to also offer one other interpretation of this, which is the one um, that Douglas Brooks talks about quite a bit, which is brilliant, which is that when he does the Urdhva Tantava, he's straight up and straight down. That just means like the upside down dance. <laughs> yeah. And so he looks like a Shivalinga. And a shivalinga is the more traditional version of shiva that you find all over the north and you find it everywhere. And it's basically about oneness. Mm-hmm. Everything is shiva. Yeah. And so when he does the urdhva Tandva, he's saying everything is one, everything is shiva. And she refuses him. She refuses that. Mm. And so the dynamic, she preserves the dynamic between shiva and shakti by refusing the singularity of the oneness. Yes. So a little heady, but I love that. It's beautiful, though. It's right? beautiful. It's incredible.
0: So. That's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You really are a great storyteller. Um, so you know we're getting close to the end of our conversation. This has been so lovely. I want to end by talking a little bit about pilgrimage, um, because of course we've been talking about Chidambaram and um, and uh, go, you know going there with teachers, without teachers on your own for for pilgrimage. And I, I, I just wanted to ask the question of like what, obviously pilgrimage to a particular place requires a certain amount of resources. It requires a certain level of affluence. So, so I guess the question, of course, the first question is, what is pilgrimage from your perspective? And then the second question is, can we engage in pilgrimage as a practice, even if we can't visit these sites due to economic reasons or whatever?
1: Um, it's interesting I actually wrote an article for Yoga Journal on that oh. a couple of years ago about like if, you, if you're not able bodied if you don't have the um, financial wherewithal um, what does it mean to go on pilgrimage within yourself mm. so actually I do believe Beautiful. that that's a possibility I don't think that everyone must go there or else Yeah, I consider myself unbelievably lucky to be able to go there and definitely make a lot of sacrifices to, to make it there as often as I do Um, And I'm lucky to have friends there now, and so it makes it easier to go. But I do think that, I mean, the experience of pilgrimage for me is, I mean, ultimately it's an inner journey. Mm -hmm. So the outer journey should be triggering an inner journey. And so if it's not doing that, it's tourism, really. Yeah. And that might be nice to go see a new place, but you don't need, it's not a pilgrimage. So I think that you can have that experience of pilgrimage within. I mean, you could set yourself up in a situation where you're like this is my sadhana this week and I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. I'm doing this meditation, I'm doing this set of mantras, I'm doing this and and you'll have an inner experience akin to pilgrimage if you do that. I mean, some of the people I know who are have the deepest spiritual practices, you know, in the Indian tradition have never been to India. So it's it's interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah, it's, I found that, um, I mean, I feel really grateful that, you know, even, I mean, it's easy to say this now, but like, it, I didn't go to India till the first time until two years ago. And then I went again last year, I'm going again this year, thankfully. And, um, you know, I had developed sort of such a relationship with, obviously, Indian philosophy, yoga philosophy, uh, quite deeply before I ever went there. And so when I went there, the whole environment was just so saturated with meaning mm-hmm. and and I've never had this experience before where I really felt the juxtaposition between my experience being on pilgrimage and re- being recognizing that I that I am on pilgrimage by by being able to see the difference in the relationship with the environment by people who were just there on tourism because of course India is a huge draw especially for Europeans and and um and other people not Americans don't tend to go there as much unless they're going you know because they have yoga connection but you know it's a very obviously it's a very popular place to visit but but people there you know met so many people who have no understanding of any of the kind of symbolism or and if they go if they are going into a temple they're going with that sort of you know, abstracted, in a kind of abstracted way and sort of a, with some kind of clear separation and, and seeing this as sort of just an alien environment that they don't really understand. And, and I felt so grateful for the ability to be there with that lens, you know, and, and, and it, it really put into perspective, and I don't think it's possible just anywhere obvious, I mean, just in India. Um, but it put into perspective just the possibility of engaging with every place with this imbued resonance, right? And, you know, even in our own homes and in our, and in New York City, like the, like that there is this choice to, um, uh, to step into the kind of pilgrimage point of view, um, or, you know, to default back to sort of the habitual whatever, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I thought I'd brain dump.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. No, I agree with everything you say. It, it was, for me, it was, it was so meaningful the first time I went. And I felt when I entered Chidambaram, I was in tears, and I felt like I, I had come home, and I had never not been there. It was so familiar to me. Mm. And so I felt very fortunate. And did you have that experience, too? Or?
0: It grew. It it sort of grew over, I think, because I was with a group. And so there was, I mean, it was a perfect group to be with, because it's the group of people that I study under Paul with. Um, But I think I, I, the first time I went to India, I traveled by myself. And, and I really had, I was also there on my birthday. And I gave up. I sort of gave my birthday. I had this very sort of conscious moment where I was giving my birthday to Shakti. I was mm-hmm. essentially saying, it's your birthday. And I went to a, sh- a, a Shakti Pete and the um, the form of Parvati there was wearing a birthday hat. <gasps> so that's just wild. <laughs> and I was just like, like so these that. little synchronistic yeah. experiences that I had that really i was only i also had a dream where i married shiva like i was having these really auspicious dreams i had a dream where i i had several dreams where i woke up laughing and like if you know my history of dreaming like i usually have nightmares so like waking up in pure joy is so was so auspicious for me and i think i could only really have that if if um because i my imagination being by myself i was allowed to let my imagination run free and and sort of the creative possibility that that took in terms of my own relationship to India and um, and so so I think going back now because I'm going to Chittambaram again I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve more time for my own personal like what because we have lots of free time once we get there we can walk to the temple by ourselves and explore and all of that and and I find that I have more um, I feel more of an intimacy when I can just kind of let my own exploration happen with no kind of you know guidelines or, or any kind of, you know, people leading us around to see certain things. Or the feeling of needing to stay with a group, which has always put sort of limitations on what you can feel and experience, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I wouldn't be going back, I don't think, if something hadn't, a seed hadn't been planted. Yeah.
1: It's, yeah, it's interesting. It was it was so it was strange how familiar it was to me. It was, I was like, oh, yeah, I belong here. And that was that. Yeah. I was in. Um, and I had always wanted to go to India for different reasons throughout my life. Just aesthetically, I was fascinated by the arts and everything. So this was a whole next level of it. But um, I wish we were crossing paths this year. I wish we sure were going to be. There I know the when same you'll time. be. When will you be there? Probably, probably mid January. Oh yeah. And then I go do lead retreat and go and then I'm going to come back Beautiful. Probably with a couple students
0: amazing yeah. yeah I'll be there like when it's super hot in March yeah. so but we'll have to arrange <laughs> yeah. sometime when we're there together someday yeah yes. so Susanna this has been a really wonderful conversation is there anything um, based on what we've talked about you know we've talked about art we've talked about your Kali Sadhana we've talked about myth we've talked about pilgrimage is there uh, we've talked about the yoga of cancer so many um, really rich topics is there anything that you feel like you'd like to share about any of those things um, that we didn't touch upon, or maybe you have a sort of um, uh, something insightful you want to end on? Oh, <laughs> no, pressure. The pressure's on. no pressure. No <laughs> pressure. Be wise. Just Be like wise. leave us a nugget of wisdom no. Um
1: I think one thing about Kali is you, you want her with you. Mm and that's one thing people are like she's kind of I'm scared of her I was like oh I was too until you realized she's you Yeah. you know you're in the fabric of her being she's in the fabric of your being there's no separation really so I think that you want to really think about who you want to walk with I mean just walk through life with you know walk through your heart with walk through your body with and not just the people you surround yourselves with that's certainly part of it as we know everyone in the yoga world knows things shift who you hang out with when you Get serious about your practice. But sort of inwardly, who do you want to be walking with? Mm. You know, and she is really the ferociously loving divine mother. And when you're deep, deep, deep in some difficult place, you want her holding you. Yeah. And so if you just release a little, she's there. Mm. And she puts her hand in yours. All of her scary skulls and everything, and you and you walk, you walk through the fire and the darkness mm. and the
0: forest. That's beautiful. So I actually do have a follow-up question to that, which is, so that quality of being held, sort of, you're kind of invoking a, a slightly maternal quality to Kali in this way. Um, then, how? What is the qualitative difference of like walking with Shiva, in in your experience? Like, is there, you know? Are there times in your life, is it is it essentially, you know, because we know they are non-separate that there's a sense in which both are present or is there is there kind of um, a relationship between the circumstances of your life and whether or not you would invoke that walking with Kali or walking with maybe a, a form, an expression of Shiva?
1: Whoever arrives, I mean, he's, you know, Nataraja, Shiva Nataraja is always dancing in my heart. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I and mean, that's, being with Kali is being with Shiva. So it's, um, yeah, I'm never without him. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of, you know, he's like looking on saying, yep, creation, maintenance, dissolution, concealment, revelation. And Kali's like, I'm going to hold your hand right now. (laughs) 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 They're both there. (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah.
0: So Susanna, um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening uh, coming up? Are you doing any workshops, retreats Ooh, that you want to share with um, the audience? Oh,
1: I'd love to. yes, thank you for asking. I always forget to mention those things. I'm like, well, I, a... I fall deeply in love talking about Kali and Shiva and I'm just like, yeah, it's great. You no, know, don't worry. I always remember. <laughs> thank I always you know. remember. Um, actually, yes, on October 7th, um, my course begins 30 things about the goddess. amazing. And that that is um, it's actually over 30 hindu and vedic goddesses and each one is thoroughly outlined a lot of information very digestible very easy to read but very thorough and academically sound so you can rely on it (laughs) and um with lots of images and then suggested practices the so what is always there i never teach without a so what it's like yay lakshmi hooray you know and so so what? what (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Gayatri. I'm like, what is the Gayatri as opposed to Gayatri as opposed yeah. to a Gayatri? It's three things. I outline all that. I you love know? that. Um, so, And, I, and I, the reason it ended up being more than 30 is because I did one that's like five key Vedic goddesses, and that's one of the 30. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a great course. I've only taught it once before, and it was very... Popular and it's it's kind of like if you just want like a huge survey on Hindu goddesses, it's the only thing out there that'll really do that.
0: Yes, that's incredible.
1: And I also have a retreat in Goa. There are only like three spaces left, but that I'm co-leading um, with my favorite teaching partner, my friend Todd Tessin, out of Detroit. And we've taught in Europe together, and and we've taught in India together before. And that's end of January into February. Excellent. So, and you can we'll
0: find have. we can find information on your website. It's all on my website, which is. Yeah. SusannaHarwoodRuben.com. Susanna so
1: if you can spell it, you can find me. <laughs> I know.
0: Well, I mean, if you Google Susanna yeah. Harwood Rubin, even if you spell it wrong, your name yeah. will pop up. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Susanna also has this book, um, Yoga 365, which actually I gave to my mother for Mother's Day or, or her birthday, I can't really remember which, way before I even knew Susanna was a person. I mean, at least I knew she was a person, obviously. I didn't know her. I didn't know that we were taught at the same yoga studio here in New York. And um, so it's one of these beautiful serendipitous things where I happen to have been connected to you even before we were connected. I love it. And so it's yeah.
1: the ultimate compliment. Thank it's you. It's beautiful,
0: yeah. It's a really beautiful book and it's a wonderful day by day. It's sort of one of those, it's one of those texts where each day has a different focus and, and we've all seen those, you know, throughout our lives, but get this one because it's um, it's uh, it's got the most kind of rich and insightful sort of, you know, things to kind of, consider or contemplate over over on a day-by-day basis so check it out yoga 365 thank you thank you Susanna it's been such a pleasure
1: thank you so much Jacob it's been great I just want to sit here and talk to you for like five more hours so oh you'll definitely you'll
0: definitely be back we'll have another episode with you for sure